Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Inspiring authors and readers since 2006. Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, episode 268. Greg Van Eekout, California Bones. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell, and I know Tim's probably going to edit that out, but I haven't been able to say that for so long. I just had to start out that way. Um, but I'm happy to uh, be back. It's been a long time to do an interview with my good friend, Greg Van Eekout, a man who uh, his, has, his voice has probably techn- technically been featured on the show, second most only to myself. Um, I don't know if Greg even <laughs> realizes really? that. Is that true? That's pro- well, it very well could be here. Okay, Greg, say this for me if you could. Say, I like writing, I like reading, I like to immerse myself in books, so that seems like a good career choice. I recall saying that. <laughs> I can't repeat that, but I recall saying that. <laughs> well, that's been in the introduction of the show for about four years. I'll uh, be darned. Yep, you said that in the first interview we did at, uh, oh, you know what? I don't even think that was Foreign Norse Code. We did an interview... Um, in person, a coffee shop, I think, right? Uh, sitting outside it, Starbucks. It, yeah, it was at it was outside uh, Barnes and Noble at Hazard a Center. Hazard Center, that's right. Yeah, and that was the first time we talked. I think. I think it was. I think it was the first time I actually met you, and the first time we talked. Wow. And then I then I sullied your podcast ever since for for quite a long time. Yeah, awesome. So there you go. Now I th- I, I think Tim is getting new stuff going. Well, I, I would imagine you would because he's taken over the show for a year now and. It's probably about the website's been all redone, so I imagine your voice is going to go bye bye, which means no. mine. Yeah, sorry about that. But at least we get you on the show this way. All right, well, that's all right. <laughs> so it's good to have you back. But uh, you did appear in episode 78 to discuss your first uh, published novel, Norse Code, and again in episode 131 in your first juvenile novel, uh, The Boy at the End of the World. And um, I really enjoyed both of those books quite a bit, Greg. So please uh, take this as a compliment. When I say that your new novel, California Bones, is, in my opinion, your best work to date, and I really love the book. Oh, thanks. Well, thanks. I, you know, you, you always hope that you get better with every book because every book feels like uh, you just barely survived getting through it. And you, you want to feel like the struggle to write a decent book gets uh, easier. And it never really does, but you always want to feel like you're getting better. Otherwise, God, you're, you know, how sad is that <laughs> if you're just going to continually plateau for decades or just get worse with every book if you got worse with every book you better start off really 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 strong which i don't <laughs> feel i did so, so anyway thanks well i know you got started as a short story writer um as far as published novels go california bones i believe is your fourth published novel yeah mm-hmm. do you have novels that you've written that are not published that are sitting in a drawer somewhere i have one trunk novel that i wrote before norse code it was uh it, it was a YA science fiction, um, kind of with a bit of romance and martial arts book. And I wrote it as intentionally as a practice novel. Uh, you know, I wanted to sell it. I hoped I'd sell it. But I figured if as long as I finished it, then the goal was, was achieved. I just wanted to finish it, and I did. So that's fine. And every couple of years, I sort of dig it out, and I look at it and think, like, you know, maybe I could – edit it, you know, knowing what I know now and make it uh, something more publishable, but it's not ever going to be publishable. Mm. It, it, it actually gets worse every time I read it. So that's <laughs> going to stay in the trunk. Yeah. 
But, you know, a lot of writers write tons and tons of trunk novels before they publish something. So I consider myself lucky and I don't feel like bad about it, that it's never going to be published. That's okay. But you wrote short stories for, what, at least a decade pretty seriously, right? Before the first novel. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't even really uh, necessarily always think that I was going to necessarily be a novelist. I mean, it's kind of always in the back of my mind that that would be cool to write novels. But I was really happy writing short stories. Uh, and I still consider the short story form to be like sort of the the purest uh, form of science fiction and fantasy in a lot of ways. But it's probably just because the stuff I grew up on was uh, short form stuff. You know, I, I picked up a lot of anthologies, and that's kind of how you expose yourself to a lot of different writers and adopt a lot of different subgenres and styles. And so I just thought, like, yeah, I'd be totally fine being a short story writer. You know, like Harlan Ellison, uh, who had a big impact on me in my mid-teens is a short story writer and Ray Bradbury who's written novels but I think his best work are short stories and I wouldn't consider them lesser artists just Mm. because they're uh, I guess you know especially in Ellison's case because he's not known for novels I think those short stories are really worthy artistic accomplishments Uh, but at, at at a certain point you know I think most writers feel at least they want to try to tackle it and once I started thinking in terms of maybe trying a novel, then I really kind of got the hunger to, to be a novelist. But for, yeah, you're right, for at least 10 years, short stories were really satisfying to me. And I, I started just um, writing these really crummy horror short stories. They're, they were the subgenre called splatterpunk, which yes. is just, sort of, you know, if you remember back, I think that was like the, the late 80s, it was subgenre of horror kind of extreme and uh, I think the splatterpunks felt that they were doing interesting cutting edge work and so I would send these dumb splatterpunk stories not the splatterpunk is dumb my, my splatterpunk stories were dumb I'd send these splatterpunk stories to these sort of uh, DIY homebrewed magazines and nice. they'd accept them but then they would never publish them because they'd go out of business like within three or four issues <laughs> so i had a string of those i probably had like 10 of those and i thought like well that's my fate i'm never going to get a short story published so the first time you sell a short story anywhere is a huge huge uh thrill and relief and so then there's a lot of room to go up from the crummy magazines that i was submitting to to like you know good places like asimov's and fnsf so once you start selling to those places you start to feel like well that's that's i'm 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 doing it now i'm living the dream i understand (laughs) the uh selling something and having it go out of business i sold a story last year i guess it was and it was my first pro sale it's gonna be pro pro rates and then it magazine went under yeah so it never it never saw the light of day (laughs) Like, yeah, symp- sympathy, <laughs> sympathy, utter sympathy. It happened to me so many times. Oh, that was glorious. Uh, so I have it sitting somewhere else, and I haven't heard anything for like six months. But um, anyway, uh, you know, talking about um, you're talking about starting over with novels. You know, one advantage you do have is all the writing muscles and skills that you developed as you're working on those short stories. So you might be starting over in terms of first-time novelist, bottom of the submission pile, so to speak. But your, the quality of your writing was going to be at a level where a lot of your competition are trying to break in haven't done 10 years of professional-level work. So that was a huge thing for you. And I notice more growth in your writing from California Bones compared to go back to Norse Code, say. Um, and there is a certain poetic element in the prose in California Bones. I don't remember 
being in Norse code, and it didn't overshadow the characters or anything like that. It wasn't forced in any way. It, it was just really, well, quite frankly, really lovely writing and some of the best writing I've read in a novel in a while. Uh, can oh, you wow. can you. you talk a little bit about the? And I know I'm kind of this is kind of a big question I'm springing on you, but can you talk a little bit about the evolution of your voice? say, since Norse Code? I mean, is there something that you're consciously aware of as you're writing in terms of your voice, or do you just kind of write instinctually and the voice is what it is? I, th- I think the voice is what it is. When you start to get a handle on certain skills, certain fundamental skills, just like um, plotting and description and pacing, that sort of frees up your your muscles and your brain to focus on other stuff and it's not necessarily even consciously so if you're really struggling with pacing then so much of your energy is going to go into that that i think other aspects of your prose are also going to be weak so once you develop one skill a little bit that i think is actually going to help you develop the other skills uh and it's just it's it's just a matter of kind of uh Mastering fundamentals so that you can actually start to develop finesse, you know, like if you're just trying to figure out how to bounce a ball, chances are you're not going to have a good crossover move. That's a basketball metaphor, by the way, I should preface by saying that. (laughs) So, you know, if you're bouncing the ball off your toe all the time, it's not, oh, well, I guess the same. Yeah, because you both dribble, but you're not supposed to be bouncing it with your hands in soccer. Not so much, no. (laughs) Yeah, but if you're bouncing it off your toe, you're not necessarily going to be able to do like any cool moves, you know? Right. And, and it's not that you're necessarily conscious of working on like, I want to develop cool moves. It's just that you can move on to the next thing. And honestly, with California Bones and, and the, the two sequels that I've written, uh, it still feels like I'm struggling with every bit of it. I mean, while I'm in the course of drafting it, everything feels like a struggle and everything feels like it sucks. And it's only in retrospect where you can read back and you can say, okay, you know, actually that wasn't that bad. Or, okay, yeah, I actually think in this, this part of this book, I can see that I'm getting a little bit better. Uh, and usually when I read the books back, they still suck and I don't actually perceive much progress. There's, there's one point when, you read, when, I, when I read a book when I'm capable of thinking it's okay, and that's the last time I read the last draft before I send it off to my editor. Mm. For some reason, that time when I... When I that reading seems to be like okay, that's a pretty good book. When I get it back in copy edits, and when I get it back in proofs, and when I'm doing a reading at a bookstore, I'm still cringing at everything that feels awkward and dumb, and everything that feels like it was a bad decision, and like oh god, why did I do it that way? And if I could only have another shot at that draft. So the growth that I perceive in my writing is really, really minimal, and it's transitory, Uh, and that could just be a personality quirk. It could just be some sort of you know thing that I need therapy and medication for, or it could just be because uh, I have a little distance from it and I can see what I wanted it to be, and the book is never exactly what you wanted it to be. Yeah, that makes sense. I I probably add to that too that your that inner self critic aids you in growing as a writer because you're not settling and you're trying to make it as good as you can, and therefore. Uh, not not only does that lead you to rewrite it, maybe a couple extra times, which makes it better, but it also pushes you to you know persevere beyond what maybe normally or what you would like to stop and just say good enough. You know, you're not settling for good enough, so that's awesome. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think a little dissatisfaction is maybe healthy for art. Right. <laughs> On the other hand, I know writers who love the stuff they write. I mean, they're in love with their own writing. They just, you know, they're tweeting like, oh, I got, I, I just read this draft back and God, I wrote a good book. And you know what? They're not necessarily wrong. I mean, a lot of the times I love their writing too. Uh, they just have a different kind of personality and perspective that makes me hate them a little bit, even if I love them as people and as writers. Jerks. <laughs> Love-hate relationship. Um, is California Bones related to a short story you wrote a few years ago? I can't remember the title of it. Yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, the story was The Osteomancer's Son. Um, that was published in uh, Asimov's, and then uh, Dave Thompson uh, published it in at Podcastle, the podcast version. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of do that with, I think almost all my novels actually sort of derive out of short stories. It's like the short story sort of opens up an idea or the short story sometimes, uh, turns out to be almost an executive summary of a novel. So when I write a short story and it keeps scratching at me and I think like, you know, I'd like to kind of revisit that world or I think there's more there. That's actually usually a, um, a good clue that maybe I should, think about it in terms of a novel that that happened with uh norse code that was a story called wolves till the world goes down um kid versus squid was a flash fiction piece called flotsam uh the boy at the end of the world was a short story very 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 different uh called um far as you can go and yeah so the osteomancer's son so what happens sometimes is just that people say like hey is there a novel in that and that happened with the osteomancer's son a lot where i hadn't initially been thinking of it as a novel but enough people were asking me about it that i started to think about it as a novel yeah well, so I remember, if, i'm sorry ahead. i was gonna say i remember that story i remember enjoying it quite a bit so when i started reading this book i thought gosh this seems familiar <laughs> um but you know did you feel like you're messing with your younger self a little bit or has it been so alive in your mind that it was just percolating and just a natural step to take this, take it to the next level. It seems it's a natural step, uh, particularly particularly with that short story. There's a, quite a big world that the story takes place in, a, a complete alternate version of history and a version of Los Angeles where magic works. You know, there are no roads in this version of Los Angeles. There are no roads and cars. There's canals and there's boats. So it's very different. Uh, and... I sort of suggest how different the world is in the short story just by allusions and references that sort of take place off the margin of the page. So with the short story uh, or with the novel, it was sort of a matter of filling in those things that I was just sort of alluding to or just sort of faking. It's like a movie set, you know, like you build a movie set and if you build it realistically enough, people think like the entire world is there. Mm. And uh, they're just basically seeing the facade, but it's a realistic facade. So they think like, yeah, it's a three-dimensional world. And in California Bones, one of the the fun parts was actually getting to build the rest of the set, you know, Mm -hmm. to actually build the city instead of just having the facade. Was I messing with my younger self? Sometimes I think my younger self, the one that wrote short stories, uh, is actually a line-for-line better writer than I am when I'm writing novels. So sometimes it's just trying to like – match that that guy, the younger guy, who's maybe less broken or something, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and make, make the short story prose that, you know, make the, the style of the short or the voice of the short story uh, sustain itself throughout a novel, which is really difficult. Because I think anybody can write beautifully for one page or two page or three pages. Uh, it's, it's difficult. And it's not even necessarily desirable 
to, to write in a short story voice for an entire novel. It can actually get a little tiresome, I think. Yeah, no, I understand. And well, Ian, your novels aren't huge, and they're not 700 page, 800 page. Let me just say thank you, by the way. You're welcome. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) Novels used to be shorter. Uh, I went to a a panel that uh, Paul Anderson was on, and the moderator brought in a shopping bag and just started piling his books on the table. And, you know, he said, like, like, here's, like, you know, 60 books you wrote. And Paul Anderson was like, yeah, but look at them. They're all short. You know? Right. So right. I don't know that Paul Anderson is, like, a lesser artist because he wasn't writing doorstoppers. You know, there's nothing wrong with a doorstopper, people. Readers like to inhabit a world and really live in it for a long time. Uh, on the other hand, there's nothing wrong with a good, brisk, you know, concise story either. And that's kind of what I gravitate towards. Cause I, I guess I just, you know, I don't have the patience to write like a thousand page book. That seems like a long time to be working on one job. Yeah. Well, it better make a lot of money on it. I mean, if you're writing shorter books, it seems like you get paid more often, right? <laughs> if, they're, if they're good, people are going to keep buying them, so you make more. If uh, I were faster, I would. I still actually <laughs> even slow at short novels. <laughs> Uh, so you mentioned California Bones takes place in an alternate Los Angeles. Magic runs everything. Magic's alive and well. And the the city has a very gritty, kind of weird, dark feeling to it. So I just felt like I was in real L.A. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that place kind of gives me the creeps. Uh, but so, so you pulled off the setting quite nicely. Um, can you tell us just a little bit more about the world and about Daniel, the hero whom we follow? Yeah, well, the central premise is that wizards get their magical abilities by consuming the bones of uh, extinct magical creatures. So if you eat the remains of a dragon, you might get some of the imperviousness of dragon scales, or you might get even the ability to breathe fire. And the wizards that do this are called osteomancers. It's bone magic. Los Angeles has the La Brea Tar Pits, which in real life is this uh, sort of area of tar deposits that when they get covered with water, they look just like watering holes. So throughout the Pleistocene, um, you know, like, so we're talking the, the age of mammoths and the age of saber-toothed tigers, mm-hmm. uh, animals would come to drink there and then get stuck in the tar and their bones are preserved there. So it was a pretty easy jump of logic to say like, well, if there were unicorns and dragons and griffins, we'd find their bones in there too. So the head wizard, the head osteomancer of Los Angeles is this guy called the Hierarch, and he's you know at least a century old, and he runs Southern California, which is broken off from the United States uh, to form the Southern California Kingdom, just as also Northern California has broken off to form its own distinct kingdom. And that comes into play more in book three of the, of the California Bones mm-hmm. series. So uh, there was an osteomancer named Sebastian Blackland, and he was one of the Hierarch's uh, key guys, one of his most powerful and knowledgeable wizards. What the Hierarch also realizes is that if if somebody eats dragon bones, they get powers of a dragon. And if you eat the person that ate the dragon bones, you get all their powers as well. So the hierarchy uses that as a way to accumulate more power, and he also uses it as a way to um, exercise political control. So when Daniel Blackland is 12, uh, the hierarch eats his father right in front of his face. Uh, so Daniel kind of starts off with this traumatic event. And Daniel uh, gets away, but the hierarch is always going to want to eat Daniel's bones too because he also has Sebastian Blackland's uh, power through training. Um, Daniel has been sort of getting by as a thief, uh, living under assumed identities underground in Los Angeles, trying to stay away from the authorities. 
Uh, he grows up, you know, and the book, the book takes place when he's in his early 20s, so he has successfully survived. Uh, he works for his uh, pseudo-uncle, Otis Roth, who is a crime lord, and Otis presents him with a really cool job that it's hard for a thief to refuse. He wants Daniel to break into the Hierarch's stash of bones, his, his ossuary, and steal a very special artifact. So Daniel gathers his, uh, his buddies, his crew of thieves, and uh, they go to take on this really difficult job. And of course, since Daniel and the Hierarch have a link to the past through the consumption of Daniel's father, He's also facing, uh, you know, the ghosts of his past. Right. So it's it's a the world of Los Angeles and Southern California in general. It resembles ours. There's a lot of stuff that take that exists in our world that exists in that world too. But I tried to make it exotic and different as the, because it is changed by magic. It's it's a different political system. Uh, it's one in which magic exists and you can, you can, in urban fantasy, you can kind of approach that a couple of ways. You can say, uh, magic exists, like, you know, like werewolves exist, but only a few people know about them or werewolves exist. And a lot of people know about them, but the world isn't much changed. And just for fun, cause I thought it would be more interesting. I wanted to do a world in which magic exists and everybody knows about it. And that has profoundly changed the world. So it's changed the way politics works. It changed the way transportation works. It changes the way society is organized. Uh, you know, in this Los Angeles, it's, it's a totalitarian regime. It's very, very authoritative. It's very oppressive. And that will change everything. Uh, as for the canals, um, it, it might not make a lot of sense for Los Angeles to have a water-based transportation system since it's essentially a desert. But... There is the Pacific Ocean, and in this world, the canals are uh, filled and propelled by the Pacific Ocean. And the reason we have these canals is because the other power in Los Angeles is the chief hydromancer, the chief water mage, uh, William Mulholland, who is a historical figure who in this book is still alive through life extension magic. And he's designed the canals to form this labyrinth or this mandala, which has its own magical properties because it is... uh, Sort of like this, this, this sigil, this magical sigil that is fueled by thousands of metric tons of of running water. So there's, uh, in addition to the osteomancy, there's also hydromancy. And it seemed like you couldn't have a Los Angeles in which water didn't play a significant role. So I said, like, let's have it play a huge role. Let's actually have it be like the rival magical. Uh, force in los angeles so right well and and i was wondering when you mentioned earlier that the uh, book three would have more uh, a story that involved a uh, northern kingdom versus southern kingdom or whatnot and the first thing i thought of what did they want our water you guys always want our water down there um <laughs> by the way we're running out of it all right we got drought conditions up here right now well you got just have to steal it from somewhere else <laughs> <laughs> we can do that um Thanks. Yeah, what was I going to say about the the magic system? Oh, uh, there's a cool metaphor in there about um, you know energy reserves and the the search for for energy is as we know we, we fossil fuels and trying to get to more renewable sources and whatnot. But you get to do kind of a cool uh, metaphor with, as they're having their own issues with uh, having enough you know power through magic. Yeah, well, it's it's a it's a limited resource. And it's it's uh, consumable, and to me that that was an interesting m- metaphor, especially about 
Los Angeles, there's sort of the idea that, you know, people use each other and consume each other there. And so that is literalized. (laughs) You eat people. And hey, I'm not, I'm not bagging on Los Angeles. You know, I, I, I grew up in Los Angeles. I lived there for the first 25 years of my life and it's still my hometown. Uh, and part of what I'm portraying is it's interesting because the reviews have, have looked at it a couple of ways. Some reader reviews have seen it as like it's giving Los Angeles uh, a very just ass kicking. You know, Los Angeles is a horrible place. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you that. And other people have said it's a love letter to Los Angeles, mostly people that live there. <laughs> so it's a strange love we have for Los Angeles, those of us who love Los Angeles. But there is some love there for it, too. But. So, yeah, there's the idea that uh, it's a consumable resource. Uh, it's literally an eat or be eaten kind of society. Um, and what happens when the magic is running out? People don't stop using it. You know, whenever right. we have any kind of resource that we're running out of, we don't stop using it. We just go through greater lengths to get it. Right. We spend more money on it. We bring it from farther out. You know, Los Angeles, the Southern California Kingdom also has um, – Trade relationships. It's it's well poised on the Pacific Rim to trade magic with Japan and China and uh, with Mexico and with South America. Uh, Northern California has strong trade relationships with Siberia and Russia, and so they're getting their magic through other sources because they don't have the, necessarily the La Brea tar pits and the same trade relations that Southern California does. So. Uh, Again, it's like it's it's sort of a complicated political economic system, and that's not what the focus is. I mean, that's just sort of right. you know stuff that's there. It's it's in the background and it, it's alluded to, but it's it's definitely um, a component of the books. Well, and that's, you'll find that in a well realized world that even though the novel doesn't focus on those things, you need to address it. So we feel like we're really in a real place. You know, we at least understand these things are going on. Um, you know, if you're going to place a book in L.A., you have to have some sort of tie to Hollywood. Sure. And, uh, yeah, about 70 pages in, <laughs> we get to meet – can we talk about this? Can we talk about the uh, Hollywood yes. historical figure? Okay, I didn't know sure. if that was a spoiler you didn't want to give away. No, nah, that's nah, fine. All right, so so Mr. Disney is alive in – well, he's alive. Um, he's alive. <laughs> so talk to us about him, the role he plays, and why you wanted to include him as a character in the novel. Well, uh, Disney, yeah, Disney is an osteomancer. He's a particular kind called a glamour mage. Uh, and what he, he kind of got his start, he made his bones, as it were, by uh, building theaters and uh, making his cartoons. And so he takes processed unicorn and he sort of mists it into his theaters. And that sort of makes people feel happy. You know, they feel like uh, they've, they're happy being in his theaters. They're happy watching his movies. The Hierarch thought uh, that he found that impressive. So he gave uh, Disney a big plot of orange groves down in Anaheim and allowed him to build a theme park where he missed large quantities of the uni- powdered unicorn horn uh, into the air. And it makes people feel like they're at the happiest place on Earth. <laughs> That's awesome. But Disney also knows that, you know, it takes magic to make this happen. And once we run out of magic, and he knows we're running out of magic, that people are going to be less happy. And people who are less happy are probably more likely to be troublesome. So uh, he's kind of got a bit of a conflict with the hierarchy because the bone is running out and Disney's not getting enough to run his operations. I don't know. Why did I put Disney in there? I don't know. I felt... uh, you needed some kind of canonical 
Los Angeles or canonical Hollywood people to make it work. Uh, so th- there's passing references to uh, various Los Angeles personages, mm-hmm. uh, but I felt Disney would just be fun to have in the book. And, and please, Walt Disney Corporation, he's not a bad guy or anything like that. I'm not saying <laughs> <laughs> Please, Mouse, don't sue. <laughs> no, no, I thought it was very cool. I enjoyed it. And I kind of see it as a metaphor as, you know, you go to Disneyland, you're happy, you're excited to be there. And then after you wait in line for a few hours, it's like you're not getting your unicorn mist. You're like, what the hell? Right, right. Yes, the magic <laughs> can run out even while you're at the park. <laughs> yes, especially when you got the two 17-year-olds making out in front of you for 45 minutes in line. Um, There's nothing unicorny about that. <laughs> was it, uh, what, what would you say was the greatest challenge you faced while you wrote this particular novel? You said each one's tough. What was the toughest about this one? The biggest challenge in this book was maintaining the tone. Um, I wanted it to be dark and gritty, but I didn't want to necessarily live for six months to a year in a very dark and depressing world. Mm. So my solution to that was uh, two things. First of all, I had a plot point where Daniel was motivated by having a daughter. In the original idea, he had a daughter, and this is from the short story. And she's kidnapped and being held for leverage to force him to do this job. And there's even a point where he's presented with her finger bone to prove that, um, A, the people who have kidnapped her actually have her and that they're going to part her out, basically, for the magic in her bones. And I started writing the book that way, and that was just too grim. I mean, there's probably writers who would have a great time writing that for a year, but that's not me. Hmm. especially not after coming off of writing two middle grade books. I don't think, uh, I think the, the, when I was writing short stories and splatterpunk stories, I would have thought that was brilliant. I would have giggled all my way through it, but not, not anymore. <laughs> so I kind of did away with that plot point. I gave him different motivation, uh, that didn't involve, you know, receiving the finger of his daughter. Wow. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to make sure was that he and his friends, um, the, the members of his crew of thieves, have genuine love for each other and they actually trust each other and that they use humor to sort of get through really tough situations, which, you know, it's something that people do. So it almost became in my head like this little seed of a subversive idea that in a world where you can't trust anybody, the way you fight against it is by having people that you trust implicitly with your life. Mm. So once I sort of figured out the, that was sort of the key that allowed me like to figure out what the tone of the book should be, how I could actually deal seriously with the world that is seriously messed up, but at the same time not make it endlessly dark and endlessly grim and endlessly depressing. Daniel has, uh, his best friend is a guy named Moth and they've kind of got like sort of a bit of a buddy team, uh, repartee going. So anytime that, uh, I got to a Daniel Moth scene. It was almost like, you know, opening the windows and letting in fresh air. And all of a sudden, like, those scenes almost wrote themselves. So I figured, like, if it's fun for me to write, hopefully it'll be fun for the reader to read. So I really started to push those scenes. And there's even more of that, especially in book three. There's there's uh, a whole uh, storyline that's just Daniel and Moth doing the stuff they do. Um, very serious stakes but also having fun doing it. And that was like really fun to write. So yeah, I guess the hardest part for me was to figure out how to write a book that sort of had a little bit of serious intent, uh, but do it in a way that was fun for me. Right. And considering you're in a world where people eat each other, keeping it, uh, uh, preventing it from becoming too dark, too gruesome, 
you know, because you could easily have gone way overboard with that, but you didn't. Yeah, I don't want to. I, you know, I, I like. I, I used to read a lot of horror, and I think that's horror is a perfectly legitimate genre, and interesting things are done there. But it's not something that I'm particularly interested in writing. So, the challenge was to write about horrific things without it necessarily being a horrific experience to read. Right now, I know you finished book two and three. You told me you just turned in book three a short while ago. So do you try to carry the same tone over, or do we see uh, tonal changes in the, the sequels? I'm sure they're tonal changes, just because you're writing it in a different period of time, uh, from a different mindset, uh, sometimes with different characters, and all that stuff helps to determine the tone. Right. But I want it to feel like they're part of the same series. You know, I don't want it to feel like a huge, drastic departure. Right. So there, there, are, there are tonal elements that are different, just because... I'm adding some different viewpoint characters and their, their voice is different and their worldview is different. So the tone does change in that way. But other than that, you know, you you do try to um, maintain consistency. I think book two, one of the characters is uh, point of view characters is about 16 or 17. So his, his scenes are definitely totally different than Daniel's scenes. That's kind of a weird sort of, weird kind of uh, challenge is when you're writing different characters who have different points of view, Mm. they should have different voices and there should feel tonal differences, but they shouldn't feel like they're coming out of a different book. So that's Mm. like, that's a kind of, that was a new challenge. It was an interesting challenge for me. Mm. Publishing question here. Uh, you, You mentioned a few minutes ago that your previous two books were middle grade books. So were you concerned at all about having two middle grade books and then an adult novel and how the the sales and book scan numbers and all that might impact um, how many books the bookstores wanted to order, all that kind of stuff that goes into that? Yeah, I I was. I mean, I was worried about it, but not to the point that I I did anything about it. You know, like I, I could have written under a different name for my middle grade books. But my middle grade publisher said, no, let's not do that. And, you know, I, I mean, there are probably really good, strong arguments for doing that. But, but I didn't. So I'm worried that readers will be confused. Readers will not know what kind of books I write. So they, you know, will pick up a book and think it's like the last book or not know and be confused by that. And, um, yeah, you know, my, my middle grade books have uh, lower print runs than my adult books. So I was concerned that, like, you know, Barnes & Noble would look at the middle grade books and say, like, well, order the same amount as we did for the last book. As, as it turns out, they actually ordered more. I mean, they, they ordered a lot more copies of California Bones than they did The Boy at the End of the World. And mm. um, my publisher is doing a really good job in positioning this book, uh, letting people know what kind of book it is, letting people know that the book exists, getting the, uh, the book in the right part of the store. So I think I kind of lucked out because I didn't put a lot of thought into it other than worrying about it, and things just kind of seem to be working out so far. Uh, and, you know, right now I'm working on a middle-grade book, and I don't know if that's smart either. I don't know if it's smart to gain some kind of traction in one area and then to lose that momentum and work in another area. But that's just kind of how I've approached my career so far. I Whatever the next idea that I'm most interested in is the one I write, even if it's not necessarily the smartest career move. And if California Bones takes off and if it sells well and if there's a demand for more books in the series, you know, maybe I'll stop working on the middle grade and I'll, I'll write another um, book in this world. I mean, I have lots more stories I could tell in this world. It's just I don't know if anybody is going to be interested in purchasing them. Right, right. Uh, and, and if not, I'm also really happy writing middle grade. So... 
I think my sort of half-ass approach to career planning so far is 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 working for me. But you know, it could crash and burn. I could, I could be wrong. I could be killing myself with every decision I make. <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, yeah, I guess that'd be a discussion for another time on the strategy. But the point it does illustrate is that good writing will always be desirable, no matter what genre or age group you're writing to, right? Even readers with limited experience can recognize good writing over bad writing when you have books side by side. Um, but, but do you prefer middle grade versus adult? Is there one that you like writing over the other? Different different, different uh, sources of pleasure. Um, middle grade, uh, I, I like going to schools. I love going to school assemblies and meeting the readers, the, the emails and stuff you get from kids. And sometimes they send you like, you know, cards with like hand drawn characters. Or mm. I got an email from a reader who's forming a gaming club so that she can uh, do a role-playing game that tells the sequel to The Boy at the End of the World that I never wrote. And that kind of stuff is just like mind-blowingly fun and phenomenal. Cool. Yeah, but you know, there's, I, I guess I'm a little uh, split personality because I sort of like the, the innocence and the whimsy of middle grade. And I sort of like the, the grit <laughs> and the darkness of my adult stuff. Uh, so hopefully I can actually um, exercise both of them. And I think what I, I, the, the genre I love most is the one that I am not currently working on. So when I was working on the adult one, middle grade, I really wanted to be working on middle grade. And I'm sure when I'm halfway through this middle grade, I'm going to be thinking, God, I wish I could drop some F-bombs. Or, you know, <laughs> I wish I could really graphically disembowel somebody. In fact, <laughs> After writing the, the two middle grades, when I started writing California Bones, the first chapter, it was just like F-bomb after F-bomb, as if like I had all these F-bombs stored up and I just had to get them out of my system. <laughs> and it took me a while to realize, like, well, you know, just cursing doesn't really make this adult. It doesn't really make it mature. But it felt good. It felt good. So, you know, I went back. That's what Twitter's took, for. That's what Twitter's for, right. right so yeah. I went back and I took most of them out, but... Uh, there was something that was not being fulfilled by writing middle grade, and I think it was the F word. <laughs> well, I don't remember a bad ton of bad language in this book. Uh, so I no, guess you should have read the first draft. It was all bad language. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad you worked it out of your system. But, uh, uh, I guess me too. <laughs> oh, so I have one last question for you here, and that's um, just a general bookstore question. I know you're a big fan of uh, Mysterious Galaxy and independent bookstores, um, as am I, yeah, yeah. with Amazon – continuing to jockey for more power and influence over book sales and you know borders is gone and dead and obviously barnes and noble just announced that their nook division is going to be split off into a separate company what is your take on the health of bookstores right now and the role of independents like mysterious galaxy do you do you see the situation from a doom and gloom angle or do you see opportunities for booksellers who uh, know how to handle it and know how to to move forward in a positive way I do see opportunities, and I should preface this like I'm not a business analyst, and a lot of people are more knowledgeable and savvy about this. But it seems to me that the reports I'm seeing in the trade press is that independents are actually doing quite well, uh, that they actually have been taking advantage of the closure of um, the chain bookstores and people's desirability, not necessarily to protest against Amazon, but to have an alternative to Amazon, to have a place where they can go and shop for books and a place that's a community center and a place where they can go see authors read and where they can have you know book club meetings and that there is still a strong desire for that. So um, 
and it, it's hard to judge. You know, Mysterious Galaxy had two locations. They had one in Redondo Beach, which is uh, Los Angeles, and they have one in San Diego. And they just had to close the one in Redondo Beach, which is really sad. At the same time, they're expanding the one in San Diego. Mm. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a complicated story, and we can't just say uh, independent bookstores are doing fantastic or independent bookstores are dying. I think it's really sort of a um, – you could look at the map and you could see – different trends taking place all over different different places. Uh, I just went on a book tour of uh, the West Coast, and I visited five different independent bookstores. Uh, and for the most part, they seemed that they were doing really well. Uh, they were certainly beautiful, amazing bookstores that were just, uh, even if I wasn't going there to do an event, I was glad I had the opportunity to visit with fantastic just amazing booksellers who are really, really passionate about books. One thing that was interesting was uh, I was at the um, San Francisco airport, SFO, and their airport bookstore is uh, Books, Inc., which is sort of a local Northern California Bay Area chain. And they told me that that's a new trend, that um, bookstores, opening real bookstores in airports is a really healthy um, segment of the sec- uh, segment of the market. So I think there are all these interesting opportunities, and it's difficult to say like this is the trend when there's so many micro trends growing on. Right. I think there are going to be um, independent bookstores in cities that do great. And tragically, I think they're going to be cities that have no bookstore whatsoever. Uh, you know, I mean, I understand Amazon is really convenient, and especially if you live in a place without bookstores, it's a convenient way to go. But I hope people know that if they do have the opportunity to go to an independent bookstore, even if they have to travel a few miles to get there, uh, it's really worth it uh, for the most part. Um, They are something that I think is necessary. And I think if we don't have independent bookstores, I think readers are ultimately going to suffer. And I think it's something that's worth supporting. It's not, it can't always be about where can I get the cheapest thing and where can I get the Mm -hmm. thing fastest. Sometimes for the long haul in terms of like where am I going to get the best experience and service and where is it going to be best uh, ultimately for books and for writers and for readers, maybe undertake a little inconvenience and go to an independent bookstore. I mean, I'm certainly yeah. lucky. I live in a, I live, you know, in a town with a great independent bookstore and I got to go to cities with great independent bookstores. You know, I understand there's places where the Barnes and Noble closes and there's no bookstore. Right. So I think it's either like an oasis or a desert depending on where you live. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, we <clears throat> I live in a fairly large area, fairly big town. Uh, we do have a Barnes & Noble. If that were to go under, there's a few used bookstores, but otherwise I'd have to go to Sacramento. So now I mean, you're talking right. a 30-minute trip just to go right. to a bookstore, and that's that would not be good. Yeah. Um, People uh, also should know that a lot of independent bookstores actually do really great mail order. They have great websites yeah. that are just as easy to use as Amazon. You know, Mysterious Galaxy, Powell's, you have, op- you have options, even if you don't have a bookstore in your town that are... Not mm-hmm. Amazon, and you can get them signed that way too. You can get them signed. Often. You know, people yeah. will people pe- will, you get special things like scribbles and doodles. <laughs> yes, Dan Simmons drew an astronaut in one of my books that he signed for me. It was awesome. Um, he's good, also. Yeah, he drew a vampire in one of my books. Yeah, he's a, he's a good artist. So, like, he, he got knows a second what he's doing with Ed. I know, seriously. <laughs> Uh, Greg, we're recording this July 2nd. I do, I do not know if this will go out before Comic-Con or not. I think it probably will. But um, are you going, going to be at Comic-Con on panels where folks could come see you? Yeah, I'm going to be at Comic-Con. Um, I know I'm on an urban fantasy panel on Thursday with cool people like Jim Butcher and Amber Benson and Kevin Hearn. 
And uh, my publisher is going to be there. So I think at some point I'm doing uh, a, a signing. I think they might actually even be giving away some books. So oh. I, I will be all over Comic-Con. Excellent. Is there anything else in the hopper that you uh, wanted to make sure to tell us about before we sign off? Uh, yeah, if people want to know more about the book, um, just go to CaliforniaBones.com. Uh, my publisher, Tor, put that up. There's uh, an excerpt of the book. Um, there's character descriptions and character art. Uh, there's even a video of me and John Scalzi uh, traipsing around the La Brea Tar Pits talking about the book. So uh, I'm sure the website does a much better job than I have <laughs> of selling the book. So, so let the tour.com people, let the tour people do their job and go to CaliforniaBones.com. And if you want to learn more about Greg, of course, you can go to writingandsnacks.com, and he's on Twitter and Facebook, where he's known to post something every once in a while. And I think this book, whether you're really into urban fantasy, I think if you read a lot of urban fantasy, you'll love this book. I don't read a lot of urban fantasy. It's not my favorite genre, and I I really enjoyed this book. So I think it appeals to a a wide range of readers. So I just encourage everyone to go out there, uh, go read the samples, go buy the book, give it a shot. You'll, You'll enjoy it and be happy you did. Um, and Greg, it was good to have you on the show again. I guess it's for the fourth time. I can't, you know, I had the Norse Code episode seventy-eight, but I know we talked once before. <laughs> I think, I think it might have been. Remember, I used to do that segment for folks who signed their book, their first contract, and we did yeah, like a yeah. short interview, and then we did the post the once the That's book right. is published. I think you were the first <laughs> one to do that, and that was what we did. We did like a little twelve-minute segment, and then the Norse Code was the follow-up to that. So we did the thing when I was totally optimistic and bright-eyed, and then we did the thing after I was beaten and broken. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. You had just decided around that time to go full-time at this, uh, which probably helped uh, <laughs> convince you to write novels, because you're going to have a hard time making a living writing short stories. You know, you're not going to do it 400 bucks at a time, no? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> So, Greg, thanks for being on the show. It's good to have you. Thanks. It's great to be back on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. To find out more about our show, our team, our reviews and articles, and so much more, head to adventuresinsci-fipublishing.com. If you're an author, go tap those keys. And if you're a reader... So that means you should go read. Till next time, folks, keep it sci-fi. Sci-fi.